This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Unprecedented in modern times. Those are the words being used to describe what appears to be a leaked draft ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court that could potentially overturn Roe versus Wade. That is the decision that legalized abortion right across the country back in the early 1970s. Let's find out what the heck is going on here. Joining us now is Jennifer Johnson, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, what do we know at this point about what happened? Well, like you said, this is unprecedented. This is um, really shocking that someone in the court apparently has leaked a potential ruling that was supposed to come out in June or July that indicates the court will overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, the landmark uh, ruling that uh, made abortions legal nationwide for women in America back in 1973. And as you said, I have never heard of a leak coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a very secretive uh, court. The opinions are, uh, the deliberations are held in secret. Um, I, I just don't know how it happened. Politico first reported this and is saying that it came from somebody that was part of the original case. The original case was a Mississippi case. Mississippi lawmakers passed a law not allowing abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and apparently the leak came somewhere with somebody involved with that. But how they got it from someone in the court is unknown. So does that mean there's going to be an investigation into this? Because it sounds like that's what's about to happen. Oh, there will definitely be investigations into this. I, I as I said, this, no one talks. I mean, I've covered cases in the in the Supreme Court where I didn't, and never even heard Justice Thomas speak. So, I mean, th- these are this, this is amazing. I was I almost fell off my bed last night when I saw this. I just could not believe that this has happened. Um, that and that someone somehow it got to a, a news organization. Um, apparently, the draft memo was written in February where Justice Alito, who was appointed by George W. Bush, um, wrote that there really should not be a constitutional right to abortion um, because it's not in the Constitution. And therefore, Roe v. Wade Wade was flawed um, from the beginning. Uh, The ruling was flawed. So, um, but it shows that the decision is is apparently a 5-4 decision with the conservative Uh, majority ruling um, against Roe v. Wade and saying that it should be overturned. Now, I I should point out to me that what the ruling apparently says, and again, this is something that's leaked and reported first by Politico, um, so so I have not seen it, um, but what it says is that abortion rights should be returned to individual states. Let, Let the individual states make the decision and not something that's made on a federal level. But that plays into the fact that almost half the states 
um, I'd have to do the math in my head, but probably about half the states um, would probably ban abortions in America. So then you get into the problem of, you know, if someone is in Miami and they want to get an abortion, how far do they have to drive north, you know, to get it legally? How significant is a draft ruling, though? Is that like that's what it's going to look like when it's published? Can you can you explain that? Well, generally, it's. It is what it's going to look like now. Protests erupted immediately. I mean, I mean, people were at the U.S. Supreme Court all night protesting this. So whether or not any opinion can be changed, in other words, this isn't set in stone. This isn't is not what is definitely going to happen. Opinions could still change before this comes out. Until it's released, that draft report can be changed. So, but will it? I would. I I would doubt it. I right. think this is the ruling it's going to be. So what are the next steps here then, Jennifer? Clearly, this is reverberating, you know, right across the political landscape today. What are the next steps here? Well, so right now, the White House isn't saying anything, but there are um, senators and Congress people who are already calling Democrats, who are already calling for a vote um, to pass a law saying that abortion is legal nationwide. So so the House and the Senate are both controlled by Democrats right now, but the midterm elections are coming up in November. And there's great concern by the Democrats they are going to lose control of one or the other. So the plan, I would guess now, would be to try to get a law passed. It's going to be really tricky in the Senate that I, I can't see it happening, but um, they're going to try, I believe they're going to try to get a law passed so that this would, it would make abortion legal um, nationwide before the midterm elections, but no one is really, you know, the White House isn't saying anything yet. They will, you know, I'm sure Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, will say something right. later, but that's the plan for Congress, you know, from what we can hear from people like Bernie Sanders and others. It just sure seems, Jennifer, that watching from this side of the border, what was already quite a tumultuous political landscape just got even more rocky. Oh, this is just I mean, this is just gas on the fire. I mean, it, I, this is, you know, what, what's interesting about this is that a lot of these elections were looking like they were going to go the Republicans' way, but nothing galvanizes the Democratic Party more than abortion. So this is going to not only change the landscape in America, but the political landscape going into November. It's going to be really interesting. I guess you could argue that for both sides, right, of, of either party, is that this is an issue that galvanizes the base. That is true. Um, Statistically, though, more Democrats will turn out of the polls. Oh, boy, it's going to be interesting times. Uh, Jennifer, thank you for that this morning. Never dull here, Sammy. No, it's not. (laughs) No, it is not. Uh, Thank you for your time. That is Jennifer Johnson, our Global News Washington correspondent. With this news out of the United States, I tell you, uh, Jennifer said she just about fell out of bed when she read that last night. I almost had the same reaction where I could not believe what I was reading. It is a leaked draft opinion indicating that the U.S. Supreme Court has at least initially voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. That's that landmark decision that guaranteed abortion access. What is so shocking about this is the fact that this is a leaked draft opinion. This is highly unusual, unprecedented, whatever word you want to attach to it, but it has never happened before. So yes, you thought watching what was going on in politics down in the United States was already, you know, crazy, tumultuous, call it what you want. It is about to get 
even higher. It's about to hit into another gear on that uh, with this latest situation. Of course, there's more to come on that, likely uh, an FBI investigation and more. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about cryptocurrency, because it turns out, according to a new survey, Canadians are less likely than Americans to use or invest in cryptocurrencies. This is actually an Ipsos survey that was done. It was part of a research project that asked people these questions in countries all over the world. So we thought, let's get some of the details on it. Sean Simpson is with us now, the Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. How big was this survey? Oh, it was, uh, well, as Trump would say, it was just huge. Uh, it was uh, 14,519 Internet users across uh, about 20 different uh, economies, uh, Australia, Brazil, Germany, Japan, Poland, Singapore, Sweden. I mean, you, 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 know, you name most of the large economies in the world, and we covered them. That is so interesting. So, okay, you were talking about cryptocurrencies, and what did you find out? Well, not only are Canadians less likely than our American counterparts to use or say that they're likely to use cryptocurrencies in the next year for a variety of reasons, they're far more likely than the 20 country average uh, that, uh, that, that we found. Just for example, uh, only 19% of Canadians say that they're at least somewhat likely to buy cryptocurrency as a speculative long-term investment. That 19% in Canada compares to 24% in the United States and 36% average across all of the 20 country surveys. You know, I, I can understand that it, it, it's, it's quite a volatile investment. So let's look at something a little bit more concrete, like uh, the propensity to use it to purchase goods and services. Again, 18% in Canada likely, 24% in the U.S., 36% for a 20 country average. That's so interesting. Do you think this has something to do with, like, Canadians, we are, in general, a little more cautious? Yeah, certainly we are a little bit more cautious, a little more risk-averse, but it's also, you know, the contextual environment in in which we operate. For one, um, you know, compared to many economies around the country, our currency is is quite quite stable, uh, for example. Um, there isn't. Uh, there are all kinds of different reasons to use uh, cryptocurrency, right? One would be maybe to protect your financial privacy because corporations, you know, aren't aren't monitoring those payments to avoid cross-border banking fees and even to shelter your wealth from taxes. Well, in Canada, we have pretty strict privacy laws. Uh, in Canada, you know, we don't typically make a habit of trying to hide our money from the government for taxes. Now, in other countries around the world, it's maybe a little bit more commonplace to do these things. And cryptocurrency can uh, provide an opportunity for some of those people to, to, you know, to do that. Okay, this is really interesting then. So, this, so do we see any areas in which Canadians are willing to take a look at cryptocurrencies? Like, where are we willing to use it? Uh, well, uh, we're more likely to say that we're, we'll use it as, as investment or to buy goods and goods and services. Those figures hover between 17 and 20 percent. Uh, we're much less likely to use it to shelter money from taxes, to send remittances across borders. So if you were to buy things uh, or need to transfer money across borders, you avoid those heavy foreign exchange fees, uh, cross-border banking fees as well, which is interesting because we have a lot of snowbirds going back and forth. Yeah. We're getting dinged by the banks every time they transfer money. Now, there are certain groups of Canadians who are more likely than others to say that they're willing to do some of these things. Uh, And those are predominantly men more than women. And of course, younger people much more likely than than older people. The story changes quite significantly among younger people. Really? Okay. So there's definitely an age difference here. 
That's right. So in, in both in Canada and the United States. So in, in the U.S., 40% of Americans under the age of 35 are at least somewhat likely to use a cryptocurrency to buy a good or service. Um, in Canada, it's a little bit lower, but it's still 29%. Remember that the Canadian average was uh, was less than 20%, so roughly a 10-point uh, increase. And it's really interesting to know, you know, Pierre Poilievre, the, the conservative leader, uh, uh, candidate for leader, I should say, um, has been talking a lot about cryptocurrency recently. And I, I keep thinking, myself, why is he doing that? Like, is, can this actually, is there actually a critical proportion of, of Canadians who, you know, are that gung-ho about cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. that this is a a worthwhile message and the answer is well nationally maybe not but among certain pockets of the population young men for example it is something that resonates and 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 perhaps can help him gain the the attention of 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 these these voters to sign up for the party and to vote for him um but i I think it's also more than than the policy it's the general message and that message is Governments have left you behind. The Bank of Canada can't deal with, uh, you know, high levels of inflation quick enough to keep things affordable for you. I understand that you feel like you're being left behind. I have progressive, um, exciting new ideas uh, to help you, you know, get ahead or at least not be victimized by by the government. Hmm. You know, that's not a message that that a majority of Canadians share, but it's certainly a message that resonates a lot with younger people, and particularly men. So interesting. Sean, thank you. My pleasure. Sean Simpson from Ipsos, Vice President of Public Affairs, talking about their survey done worldwide on the issue of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and whether or not Canadians are likely to invest. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's an issue that is not going away anytime soon. It's one of the biggest healthcare crises that we have seen in this province in a long time, and that's the family doctor shortage. Almost a million people in this province don't have a family doctor, which makes it incredibly difficult to get any kind of continuity of care for people to just look after themselves. And so not only are there all those people that don't have a doctor, but current family physicians, so people who are already doing that job, are burning out because of an ever-increasing workload. What needs to change here? We thought, let's talk to doctors about this. Well, joining us now is Dr. Brenda Narang, who's a family physician and the co-founder of the This Is Our Shot campaign, also a Global News medical contributor. Dr. Narang, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Now, you're a family physician too. How has this impacted you? What is your workload like these days? So my workload um, <laughs> has been busy throughout the um pandemic um, and as, as of all of my colleagues um, my, my situation is a bit different than some of my colleagues was because I work in a community health center based setting where we are we you know we kept seeing patients in person throughout the pandemic we see marginalized populations um, and we are supported by teams um, the problem is a lot of my colleagues out there don't have an uh, adequately funded team-based structure to work in. So do you think then, and I've heard this from some other doctors, is that we need to change the way we deliver family physician care? Oh, absolutely. When you look at, um, you, like as you mentioned, fifty almost 50% of physicians in Canada meeting the criteria for burnout, with almost half of the physicians planning to decrease their clinical practice in the next couple of years, this numbers are, these numbers are going to get... Uh, far worse um, if there's not immediate and uh, innovative action. Um, we know that uh, medical students and family medicine residents, so these are people who are in residency right now, 
are basically doing anything but family practice. Um, local numbers that I've heard in some of the um, residency training programs is that only about one out of eight people who are graduating are even considering doing family medicine in a longitudinal practice, which is, you know, outpatient clinic, you know, taking a patient on and following them over, um, you know, the course of their illnesses. That's so true. Um, and wellness. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very true because I have a brother actually who's just about to graduate from medical school. And this is exactly what he has been telling me. And that is there is no real drive or incentive. It seems like all of the incentive is to do something else. Oh, and it is. It's, it's incentive. And that's because when you look at um, the remuneration um, that's in place right now, the current kind of market street value of a longitudinal family physician is only about two thirds of that of someone doing um, addictions type work or um, working in emergency departments or in uh, health authority run UPCCs, the urgent primary care centers. And and part of what uh, family physicians value is their autonomy and agency to work for their patients in a way that doesn't make them sacrifice that. And that's why a lot of these initiatives that have come out are actually disrupting that rather than supporting it. Now, you mentioned we need in immediate and innovative action to deal with this. What does that look like? So, there. well, we're not going to be able to cover all of it in this time, but <laughs> right. um, starting with it um, is we need to address the inequities in pay that uh, exist. And that's not just a simple question about, you know, should we be paying per patient the fee-for-service model or we should put people onto contract? We need to find a way that equitably values family physicians' time and values their training that got them there. And the evidence supports this. That's, what, that's what's crazy about all this. It's like we have Canadian data that shows that adding one primary care physician per 10,000 people has been associated with a 6% decrease in all-course mortality. Investing in family practice, high-quality family practice, saves lives. And I think that's the, the, the simple part of it. When we talk about a bit more innovation, there absolutely is a role for telehealth here, virtual care, but it has to be integrated in a way that supports um, the family-physician relationship. Let's say you're my patient. A three- to five-minute telephone call with me is going to be far more valuable than you having a 15- to 20-minute corporate um, you know, uh, um, telehealth visit. Right. Because I know you. <laughs> right. So because that's we have that con continuity of care, right? Like it's developing Absolutely. that relationship with your doctor. So we need Yeah, and so we need infrastructure funded for that. Right now what's happening is the cost to actually modernize practices again, it falls on the head of the family physicians. And part of it is um unless we fix the rising business costs or get support for the rising business costs, you look at all the real estate problems and cost of living in Vancouver, why I, you're basically when I came back here uh, in 2016 to start practicing, my co uh, colleagues that I trained with are like, you know, you're you're automatically giving up 20 percent of income just to work in British Columbia compared to Alberta. That's a big difference. Can we, Doctor Nering, is, is it also possible <laughs> for us to graduate more family doctors? Do we need to do that? <clears throat> Well, we're graduating a lot, and and but the problem is that physicians are positions in are, are going unfilled in family practice programs, um, and that that's what the evidence continues to show. Like even this, when we just went through um, the graduating, um, we have a matching system nationally here. There were over two hundred unfilled family medicine residency spots, and so those are people. 
who are wanting, or in this case, not wanting to go into family medicine. That number is rising because medical students are smart. They realize that the, the environment is not welcoming for them. Um, and they realize that the practice styles that are available for them do not reflect um, what they're being trained in. They're being trained in collaborative care, um, community-based care, spending time with patients, um, creating uh, team um, care plans. And we have evidence, again, in Canada that this works. There are primary care networks um, in Alberta, um, and that has saved their system about $120 million over the past 10 years. The difference between the primary care network initiative in Alberta and here is that in Alberta, they are family physician led. Here, they are not. Despite what we are told, um, the engagement process for family physicians to be involved in primary care networks has been difficult from the onset. Do you get the sense though that the government is listening? Like, do you feel like things might change? Oh, they have to change. And I, I, I absolutely do believe that the government is listening. I also believe that the intent has always been um, good along the way. Like, I, I don't think anyone is operating from a place of malintent. I think that there's been issues with communication breakdown um, and um, communication transparency and accountability are the keys um, to a healthy relationship. And I would say that uh, the relationship between physicians um, and our political leaders is not healthy right now. And so how do you fix that is you need to repair the trust. And to, for that, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that, you know, there have been missteps along the way. We've heard some statements um, even in the past week that don't reflect the reality of what we're living through. And so we need to fix that. We need to we need to have confidence in our political leadership and our representative leadership. When I mean a representative leadership, I mean, that's the doctors of BC. That's our professional uh, organization that is involved in negotiations with the government. And I think that the average family physician, the average medical student, doesn't feel that the urgency is coming in turn from enough from right. internally within the profession. We're hearing it a lot, and I, I uh, applaud you and your colleagues in the media and um, the patient advocacy groups that are out there right now. That is what is needed. But we need to hear that same level of urgency from. Uh, the, the groups that I mentioned. Right. Dr. Narang, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. No worries. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Brinder Narang, who's a family physician, also Global News CKNW medical contributor, talking about the family doctor shortage. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, the government of BC has decided to not go ahead with a controversial plan that would have forced youth to undergo treatment for up to seven days after an overdose. It's a big change of gears for legislation that had been quite vociferously defended by Premier John Horgan over the past couple of years. So why the backtracking on this? Why say now is time for a different path? Well, joining us now to talk about it is Sheila Malcolmson, the BC Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. What changed with this legislation? Yeah. Your listeners will remember two summers ago now, summer 2020, 
we introduced our government, my, my friend and predecessor, Judy Darcy, introduced a bill that was called Bill 22 at the time. And uh, it wouldn't have, have put um, involuntary treatment on young people who had just risked, to, had just survived an overdose, but it would have held them in hospital for two days or maybe as long as a week to give them the opportunity to settle, to um, stabilize to be safe in the aftermath of a overdose and to give them the opportunity to get connected with treatment. So this wasn't forced treatment, but as you'll remember, it was really controversial at the time. In the time since, when I became minister, the premier asked me to pick this work up again, and we thought that we were going to reintroduce it once we explained that it wasn't forced treatment and, and we worked with some of the people that had had very strong concerns about it, keeping in mind that a lot of parents and families were still saying we really do need more tools at this most terrible time in our teenagers' lives. And they wanted the bill to go ahead. So I'd say two, three things really have changed. One is that the toxicity of the drugs is so much stronger, which makes um, withdrawal and, uh, and reduced tolerance even more dangerous. Um, we heard more strongly from young people that they might not call 911 if they were in that dangerous place, if they thought that their friends might be held against their will. And maybe most significantly, we commissioned a report, Minister Dix commissioned a report about racism in the healthcare system, which we've committed to implementing. Um, and we heard a lot about how we need to, as a government, make changes in our emergency rooms and and hospitals so that they are places that vulnerable people will want to go. And finally, the confirmation last summer of unmarked graves at residential schools just made even more difficult and heartrending any conversation about the government holding children against their will, particularly Indigenous children. So with all that together, we've now decided not to return Bill 22, but to take a different path in order to keep the same objective and, and keep young people as safe as possible in this most vulnerable time just immediately after an overdose. All right. So a couple of things here then. Why wasn't any of this information taken into account two years ago? It's not like these situations didn't exist or that information wasn't out there. Well, we certainly heard some of those things. There's no question. Um, and, and you're right. The bill was controversial at the time, but we also heard from a lot of people in healthcare um, and a lot of parents um, that they said that they that they wanted more tools, and so that you know all those pieces were on the table. But particularly uh, for me, what I learned about the trauma associated with holding young vulnerable people against their will, particularly First Nations kids, um, and also that we, in the time since, have built up more voluntary supports. That's a really important part of my job, um, treatment and prevention. Um, and as well, some of the pilot projects that we've had about how we can voluntarily uh, meet and support youth, particularly vulnerable youth, um, in emergency rooms um, are starting to show some progress. First Nations leadership said, we want to co-develop an approach with you. We all agree something needs to be done in those emergency rooms at that most difficult time. First Nations leadership said that they want to co-develop something with us, which is our responsibility under United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People. And so we are going to do that work together and, and um, right. have, a, have a clean slate. Okay, so then what will this bill look like now? I mean, if what parents were telling the government was so important two years ago about having those tools, what kind of tools are you going to give them now? Yeah, 
So what we have been doing in the meantime, um, we've opened a new treatment center for youth in Chilliwack. We've added new treatment beds in Kelowna and Kamloops. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I visited some amazing young women at uh, Westminster House in New West, of young, young girls, um, young women and girls. Uh, we've added emergency on-call therapists that are peer-led at four different lower mainland um, emergency rooms and, and, and gathering some data from those interactions. Um, and especially on the prevention and substance use connection side, um, we've, we are adding and expanding the really powerful foundry centers, which are, are youth designed and, and, and all focused around youth and, and also move some of those services online. So on the addiction treatment, counseling, prevention, and stabilization after an overdose, we've added voluntary pieces. And then now we'll be returning to that work about what happens in emergency rooms and is there any time that an involuntary holding is appropriate, but to make sure that it's culturally informed. And, and here's the voices of, of, of all parents and young people. Because it seems to me that was a central part of that legislation originally two years ago, and the Premier was adamant about that, that it was a tool for parents who felt at their wit's end. They needed some help. So where is that help for those particular parents who need it? Yeah, well, all of those resources that I've just mentioned are all the kind of things that we've been hearing from parents. It wasn't only the, um, can you find a way to hold my child against their will following an overdose? And that's what this legislation was about. Also been hearing from parents that they want more options for treatment. They want more options for counseling. They don't want, if their child says, yes, I'm, I'm ready to take that step, they don't want to be faced with a waiting list. We are working every day to build those supports up. We're not there yet. Um, it's an unprecedented challenge for the healthcare system and for addictions treatment. Um, all the people working on the front lines facing two public health emergencies at the same time and, and standing up new services, but we are almost every week. Um, it's None of that makes any of this any easier for a, a young person and their family who are struggling with addiction. The drugs are just so... Um, heartbreakingly strong right now. Um, but we are working together. We are listening to people. And, um, and we are able to shift you know, when, when we hear you know, that really strong advice, and particularly um, that offer to co-develop mm-hmm. a different kind of a way that um, was, will be less controversial. Right. But you just said it. There's still, people are still waiting. So they've already waited the two years while this legislation has been discussed, debated, consulted. So people are still waiting for that help, aren't they? Well, and in the years since, we've opened um, new addiction treatment centers for youth um, in communities across the province. We've opened new counseling centers that Foundry offers. Um, We've got new online resources. Um, We've got expanded funding going into some of the uh, peer-led substance use counseling uh, and trauma counseling in uh, in emergency rooms following an overdose. So all of those resources have been added since summer of 2020. Um, and there's much more in the pipe, $97 million in youth-oriented substance use services um, that we have got in the budget right now. And we're working with health authorities and, and um, community service organizations to implement and expand. 
and doing all that with the, the voice of youth and families in mind. So none of that work stopped. Um, and we heard when people said, we don't want you to, to take the risk of holding children against their will just to discharge them to a waiting list. That's impossible. And, and that was, um, so that, that's something that we heard something that we've responded to, and um, and that has been the focus of the work in the, in the intervening year. All right, well, there's more to come on that. Thank you for your time. I appreciate the conversation, and more for us to do, no question. This is Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a big step that the provincial government took yesterday, the B.C. government introducing first-of-its-kind legislation having to do with collecting information. It is the Anti-Racism Data Act. The goal here is to provide a tool to ensure that all the data collected can help identify gaps in programs and services. So what are some of the reasons why we would need legislation like this? Well, you may remember back to when there was an extensive investigation conducted into systemic racism in the healthcare system. The person who conducted that survey is with us now. It's Mary Ellen Terpel lafond UBC Law Professor, Director of the Residential School History and Dialogue Center at the Peter Allard School of Law. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Nice to be back. What did you think about this announcement from the government yesterday? Do we need this act? Yes, we do need it, and I was um, happy to see it. Um, when I did do the extensive um, you know, review of whether anti-Indigenous racism exists in the BC healthcare system, um, the data that was available um, wasn't necessarily disaggregated, meaning we couldn't necessarily understand how were First Nations people experiencing healthcare services. So in that review, we did disaggregate the data, look at it, collect new data, and we found, in fact, that they were facing significant barriers and racism in healthcare. So that was invisible unless we really had the disaggregated data. So this legislation promotes developing a standard across government so that public service evaluation information can look at how different citizens, different groups of people experience those services. So this is a progressive and positive step. So how do we collect that information then to prevent things like that from happening in the healthcare system? Where, which box do we check? Like, how do we get this information? Right. Well, we need to make sure that it's collected. So in the healthcare system, just as an example, um, you know, First Nations had been advocating for many, many years to make sure that um, data was collected about their experiences. It wasn't always the case, but they advocated for that. And as that data became disaggregated and looked at their specific experience, we then got, got to understand where, um, you know, how pervasive the racism and discrimination they were experiencing in healthcare was and the kind of stereotypes that they were facing and their poor access to services like primary care. So we need to make sure that there's a data standard, that it's done properly, and it's not just Indigenous people. It's um, all uh, various ethnic and cultural groups in British Columbia. We're a diverse province, and we need to understand how public policies are affecting everyone. So, I mean, I'm talking about healthcare, but it's just as important when it comes to public safety, policing, education, and so forth. So is that information that we collect sort of at the initial intake point and how do we set it up so that there's still like we make sure we respect people's privacy? 
Well, the privacy is respected because when um, disaggregated data is collected and used, it doesn't have identifying about the person. You strip out the identifying element in it, but you are at least able to collect information about who is being served, and then you can assess to see you know, against the whole population, like, for example, like, you know, who has a primary care physician in British Columbia? Um, are some, you know, groups of people less likely to have? Are some, uh, you know, different age groups or people who are LGBTQ two-spirited? Plus, we need to understand these differences because we've had uh, a number of opportunities where we've done targeted or specific evaluations. And we found that, you know, not everyone has the same experience in public services, Plus, some of our services are designed in a different era, and they need to be refreshed and renewed to be effective and responsive to all citizens. Right. This sounds like a long-term project, though, doesn't it? Because first, we have to design a way to collect that data, then we have to collect that data, and then we have to act on that data. Yeah, well, we have to, first of all, have the data standard, so it's done ethically and appropriately, and of course, privacy protections are necessary, uh, and we need to make sure the tools are done well. So this legislation sets that out provides a, you know, a statutory officer who's responsible, has to work with everyone to create that standard. Other provinces where this has been done, I would say BC is going to lead with this, but in Ontario, there was a kind of legislation like this in 2017. Um, It took, you know, well, there was a pandemic, of course, which set things back, but by about 2020, various agencies like the police oversight agency and so forth started to apply the data standard and we started to get a better picture about how various um, groups of people experience um, policing and police complaints. That's just one example. So I expect in British Columbia, if this legislation passes, which I'm hoping it will, that we will will be 12 to 18 months to operationalize that and see the change. But everyone uh, will have a standard It'll be well organized, I hope, and I think will tell us more about how people are experiencing public services and what kind of changes we need to perhaps think about to improve those services. Right. You say you hope, right? Because you want to make sure it's like, so what would you like the government to keep in mind during this next phase of the process? Well, I think the I think the government's done a good job, and I think the senior officials, because I, of course, did that in-plane site report, I did have a chance to interact a bit with the senior group of public officials who are leading this initiative. I think they're a very competent and capable group who've been looking at this from different angles. So I hope we, you know, they continue with this good work and that it's implemented effectively and it's implemented consistently. Like I've spoken about healthcare. But I know well about, um, you know, children and family services, education, um, policing and public safety, like the standard needs to be rolled out and the disaggregated data needs to be collected and analyzed across the system. So I think the investment, the commitment to it is important, but um, it's a positive step. And I'm, I, I certainly support this new legislation. When you did your look at the healthcare system, how difficult was it for you to get some of the answers to the questions that you had? Oh, it was so difficult. We had to really, really take apart the data and then collect new data. So on things like, you know, complaints, like who complains about their health, the quality of care they receive, what happens to those complaints to regulatory colleges, health authorities, etc. That wasn't necessarily assessed by, um, you know, identity and age and so forth and location. So we had to, you know, reproduce uh, new data or produce new data sets. We had to analyze old data sets and then we hit walls because we couldn't understand fully 
uh, how different people were experiencing things. Like one example would be in seniors care or long-term care, an area where the pandemic has hit pretty hard. And we, and we do have a seniors advocate, thank goodness, in British Columbia. But, you know, the seniors advocate has never produced a single report on the impact in seniors care on Indigenous people or people of colour or racialized communities. And I suspect that's because there's no data. And so we don't know, for instance, you know, our First Nations elders well-treated in long-term care. We have no data about that. And uh, we need to really look at that because what I found when I was doing the review was um, elders and seniors, Indigenous seniors in particular, really are not getting the support that they need, particularly as they age. So that's just one example of what's not there. So we have different people doing important jobs like the seniors advocate and others, but, you know, they need to look at this and they need to have this kind of data so that they can tell us how are we doing in this area? What changes should we be thinking about? Interesting stuff. Well, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Nice to talk to you again. You too. That's Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafont, who's a UBC Law Professor, Director of the Residential School of History and Dialogue Centre at the Peter Allard School of Law, talking about this anti-racism data act that the provincial government uh, brought forward yesterday. There was a big technical briefing on it. Vaughn was saying it was a very thorough, really good technical briefing to explain what is going to happen with this. But essentially, it's a way for them to collect information about the backgrounds of the people who access services to make sure that everybody is being able to access those services. But you need to collect this information first, as Mary Ellen Terpelafon just explained to us.